0: Well, folks, we made it to another year. It's 2022. Well done. Uh, if you're like me, you got a lot of emails this week about new and exciting things coming up. Uh, one of the emails that I got, the uh, the subject line, said, "Vow to try new and better things this new year." Boy, that was inspirational to me. Mildly discouraging because someone I didn't know assumed that my year stunk, and I needed to do better. But I wasn't all that offended, to be honest, because the reality is, sure, there were things this year that I would have liked to have done better, I wish had gone better, Uh, things that I said that I would do, vows I made last year, perhaps, that I wish would have been better, that I would have followed through on. But the reality is, I'm human. I failed. I failed. There were things that I wish that I would have done that I didn't, that if I go back, I wish that I could redo. And this is the reality of our humanness, is failure. And so as much as that subject line was something for me to chuckle at, it did bring about a reality of, I want things to be better this next year. You know, I don't want to discourage you here in the start of the new year that we are ones who often fail in what we desire to do or promise to do. But that's why I take great hope in the text that we'll get to study today, because while we might struggle to keep our promises, what we're going to see in God's word today is that he is one who will always keep his promise. And therefore, it gives us hope in the midst of our own failures. If there's one idea that I want to leave us with today, as we come out of this text, it is this. Jesus Superior ministry established a covenant that we cannot break. Jesus' superior ministry established a covenant that we cannot break. Today is the last sermon in our Advent series, the fifth of five sermons. We've had an opportunity to think about why Christmas is better, why we, particularly as Christians, should have a better Christmas. Well, it's not actually because of us, it's because of a better man, a better prophet, a better, better king, a better priest, and today we're going to see that that better person brought about better promises, a better covenant. And so we're going to be studying Hebrews 8. I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 1065. It will help you to follow along in the text, because I'm going to try to just walk through these verses. And help give us a picture of what is being told to us in Hebrews 8. Of our hope in Christ's ministry that results in a better covenant that we can't break. I just have two points. The first one is going to be thinking about that superior ministry of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, thinking about the better covenant. Let's start as we think about this superior ministry in verses 1 through 6. I'm just going to read the first two verses. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. Chapter 8 picks up exactly where chapter 7 ended, which is not at all surprising. And hopefully you were here last week to hear Pastor Daniel's sermon in Hebrew 7. If not, and if you're listening to the podcast, I'd encourage you, pause, go back and listen to that sermon. That'll help you a lot for this sermon. But if you're here this morning, I'm going to try to briefly summarize some things that Daniel had said last week out of Hebrews 7, because it leads well right into chapter 8. And the beginning of chapter 8 tells us this is what the main point of chapter 7 was. There's a high priest who sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And he is a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. Uh, here is is the proclamation of of this high priest. Not just that he's in this role, but actually a place of authority in which he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, but this is not just any throne. He is he is ministering in a sanctuary, in the in the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord Himself. This is not a man made place. This is not something that we can understand or create. No, this is a place in which God himself has established his throne for eternity. Over all things. The entire universe. Well, this is where the high priest sits. Not just in any place. No, our great high priest sits in heaven. And it's really important that we would see Jesus sitting This high priest sitting in this role of authority. This this place of great power. Why? Because I want to be convinced that what Jesus says and what he promises comes with authority. You know, this is much like students who might sit under a classroom setting where there's a teacher's assistant. So no offense to you TAs out there. But a TA might say to a student, as I remember hearing, this will be on the test. And I always thought, eh, we'll see. Maybe. Now, if the teacher said that, oh, you know I listened, right? Because if the teacher said it, I know that the teacher has the authority to write the test and give it to me. I'm going to listen to that teacher. They're in the place of authority. Well, same thing here. We recognize we want to respect and honor that role of high priest, not just because of what he has done for us, but Really, here being emphasized, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the God of the universe. He comes with authority, and what he says, he will do. But what gives Jesus the right to sit in this rule? Well, look at verses 3 through 5 with me. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it was necessary for this high priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those uh, offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Here we see that... His role as high priest, his opportunity to sit, his, his place to sit in heaven, in authority, is because of the work that he did here on earth. This high priest, similar to the other high priests, was one who would bring a sacrifice. But it wasn't just a copy. See, the high priest who served Israel... They were ones who were serving, giving sacrifices, who were leading the people. That was a that was a shadow. Right? It was a picture of what was to come. Even here, the the instruction that we're reminded of that was given to Moses in in Exodus twenty five verse forty, God tells Moses, "You're going to follow these plans and do what I said in building the tabernacle and establishing these rules because." These are shadows. They point to what is to come. They point to the sacrifice that is going to come, points to the place of worship where I sit. They were shadows. But we recognize, right, that, that shadows don't save us. That's part of what this text is pointing out to us. What they did in, in those rituals and, and in what God had instructed them to do in their worship Oh, they were all pointing forward and 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 was a shadow. I think of a really practical example of if you were enjoying a a very remote place up on Mount Hood at a cabin and a bear was chasing you outside and you run to the house and you stand in the shadow of the house. It's not going to save you, is it? You need to open that door and go inside. You want the real thing, not just the shadow. Here is a helpful reminder that the shadows weren't saving those people. No, they were pointing to the high priest who was going to offer a sacrifice that was different. Yes, he still needed to offer sacrifice, but it wasn't like what these high priests were offering. And this is where actually Hebrews 7 is really helpful. The context of Hebrews 7, verse 27, telling us that Jesus himself offered a sacrifice, but he doesn't have to do it every day. He doesn't have to repeat it like the high priests of old. No, his sacrifice accomplished more. Why? Because he was offering himself the sinless lamb. He was the one who gave up himself to save a people. And his sacrifice changed our relationship with God. We no longer needed to offer up those shadows. We could trust and believe in the real thing. And so we see that Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne in heaven in authority because he was a high priest who offered a better sacrifice and who gave of himself his own life, dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. This is, is the ministry that Jesus himself has done for us. Even here in verse 6, we're told Jesus now obtained a superior ministry. That ministry changed the way that you and I live. And I want to pause here and and ask you to think back on, on this imagery that we're given of a shadow of a picture of what was to come. And we get to be on the other side and realize, I I can see what happened. I can see the sacrifice that Christ made. Scripture makes that clear to me. But I wonder in, in your life, if you're still more attracted to those shadows than you are to the real thing. I know in my own heart, it can be easy to set up the rules, the laws, to follow those To come into this building as if this building makes me a better Christian, as if sitting in this pew makes me a better person, makes me know God more, religiously reading my Bible or praying as if those routines will just make me a better Christian. Well, those are shadows and and they're good. I don't want to discourage you from being here in these pews in this building and from reading the word and being in prayer, but... Don't treat those things as if that's what makes you spiritual, as if that's what makes you closer to God. No, it's because Christ is in them. It's because the Holy Spirit is working through those wonderful gifts of the church and his word and prayer. And so don't get distracted by serving the shadows. Look at them and realize, no, Christ must be at the center because it's what he did that changes them that makes them powerful in my own life to transform me, to draw me closer to him. And so consider what attracts you to being here. Come into this church building ready to see God at work in your own heart and in the lives of those around you. To see the Holy Spirit active, not just coming in, checking your box, and walking out the door, but looking for God to change your heart. Because Christ is our high priest who sits on the throne. His ministry is superior. And what that means, the implication is in verse 6, to the degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. Here is what results from Christ's superior ministry. He sits beside the right hand of God. He is functioning as the high priest, and what has he accomplished? He has made a better covenant with better promises. So let's focus on this here in the second point. If Jesus' ministry is indeed superior and has accomplished much, what does it mean that there is a new covenant and a better covenant? Well, point two, the new covenant here in verses really six through the end of the chapter are going to describe to us what this new covenant is about. And hopefully one of the questions that you're asking is, why do we need a better covenant? What was wrong with the first one? Well, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. Here we're told that we needed a new covenant because the first covenant was broken. You know, it wasn't that the covenant itself was the problem. God established a covenant with his people that he would be their God as they would serve and follow him and not worship other gods and not run off to worship other things. And yet God's people, the people of Israel, the house of Judah, they failed. Even here, the description of being led out of the land of Egypt, we see that they failed to keep the covenant. They didn't worship God alone. They didn't forsake all others and pursue God. They were torn away to the gods of the nations around them to follow after their own hearts. They worshipped themselves over the Creator. Here we deal with the difficulty of a broken covenant because we feel this, don't we? You and I are not all that different from the people of Israel. We feel the weight at times of not being able to pursue God as much as we would like. And here we feel the weight of a broken covenant. In this text, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah 31. I recognize the timing of this. Jeremiah, a prophet, proclaiming to the people, who were in captivity and going into captivity, that this covenant was broken. Even then, in the Old Testament, a prophet is telling the people, no, there will be a new and better covenant to come. Be looking for that. He doesn't leave them in the discouragement that they have broken the covenant. But we see that there are consequences to the breaking of that covenant, that at the end of verse 9, God says, I showed no concern for them. Because they did not continue in my covenant. As God led them by the hand out of Egypt, Israel, like a small child, pulled their hand away, out of the Lord's hand, to run the other way, to turn their eyes towards the gods of this world. And it broke the covenant. And that isn't real surprising to us. We understand the idea of a broken contract, a broken covenant. This is not a new concept even to our culture. Uh, for me, I uh, used to work in the auto industry, and I would have to sign, in, in one sense, a covenant, an agreement to not disclose sensitive information about new products, new cars that were being rolled out. I would have information ahead of time. And if I told other people, and particularly the media, about what was happening in product design, that contract would be terminated. I would no longer be employed. I would have no job. There's really no other way to put it than if I broke the contract, that relationship ended very poorly. Maybe the more relatable to all of us, whether we're married or have observed marriage, is the reality that we form a marriage covenant between a man and wife. And the husband and wife are committed to one another in these vows and commitment in this covenant, and yet that covenant is broken When one spouse goes outside of that marriage and has sexual relations with someone else, it breaks the covenant. And so we're not surprised here to read about Israel running from God, turning away, not holding the covenant, and God says that covenant is broken. A new covenant is necessary. Here I want to just take a moment to remind us of the seriousness seriousness of sin. Sin, in the pursuit of other gods and worship of self, is what broke the covenant between God and his people. And our sin in our own lives that we commit breaks our relationship with the Lord. God cannot be a holy God and be married to sin. And so I wonder how you view your sin, whether you're a Christian or not, to recognize that your sin is an offense before a holy God, to be one who is quick to recognize sin and say, yeah, that's sin. I'm not going to make excuses for it. I'm not going to call it something else. I'm not going to pretend as if it doesn't exist. I'm not going to pretend as if it doesn't matter. I'm going to recognize that sin breaks my fellowship with the Lord. And therefore, I want to turn away from it. I don't want to be like the people of Israel who pulled away their hand and the Lord had turned from them. No, I want to be one who is turning to the Lord and seeing his face to be in that relationship. And so for you, maybe that is in your own heart a willingness to call sin, sin. I have to do this on a weekly basis to say, no, I'm not going to make an excuse for this. Sin is sin. But to not just leave it there, but to repent of it and to say, No, I want nothing to do with it. And I want to turn away from that. It should be a consistent part of my life to step into fellowship with God. And yet, even in this text, I want you to see that it wasn't just what the people did that brought them into relationship with the Lord. Yes, what they did broke that relationship with the Lord. But we want to see. Why is it so important that Christ, in his role, a superior ministry, brought about a new covenant? Look at verses 10 through 12 as we focus on this new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, into their minds, and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. Here we see that God had not forsaken his people in their rebellion, but had actually created a better way for them to know him. He established a new covenant that was better than the first. God had promised an heir. He promised one who would conquer sin and death. Here we get to see what comes out of that work that Christ accomplished as the high priest, as the one who sits in heaven. Well, here we have kind of three areas that stand out to us, one in verse 10, one in verse 11, and one in verse 12. Here's the new covenant that God is making with his people. We are going to have the law written on our hearts. Oh, God's not just going to call a people his own. He's going to make them his own. He's going to write on their hearts the law. His way will be written on our hearts and our minds. The responsibility of keeping the law no longer rests on my shoulders as if I can do enough to please God. No, it's actually God's work on my behalf that draws me closer to him. that that brings me back to himself. How is this possible? Well, it's because Jesus had a superior ministry. It's because Jesus Christ himself was the one who kept the law. He is the one who lived perfectly, who established this relationship with God that we might come back to him, that God might draw us near. Oh, but secondly, here we see uh, the other part of the promise, verse 11 each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. Oh, well, Here is here's a promise that as God's children, we will be ones who know him. We will be those who know his work in our lives. You know, much like for me as a parent, You know, nobody had to tell my children, Foster and Astrid and Magnus, that I was their dad. They were born. They were in my household. They know that I'm caring for them, that I love them, that I am their father. No one has had to come along and teach them and train them. You got to listen to this guy. He's your dad. That comes pretty innately by them living in my household. Here, we see God's work in the life of people to bring a people to himself to say, I am your father, and like a child, you will know me that I am your father, that I am here, that I am in you. How is that possible? How does God do that work in a new covenant to make us know him? It's through the work of Jesus Christ, his ministry. The son who knew his father. Telling people around him, I and the father are one. I know him and he knows me. Oh, that is who came to this earth. This is why Jesus as high priest is so significant. Because he is the father's son. He accomplished that work for us because we couldn't. Our relationship with him was broken. And yet Jesus brought us into relationship with the father Because the Father knows him, and he knows the Father. The third aspect here of the promise, verse 11. Each person will not teach his... uh, Sorry, verse 12. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. Here we see this beautiful picture of those who have God's law written on their heart, those who know God... But those who are also forgiven of their sins, the thing that has broken their relationship with the God of the universe has been rectified. It has been changed. The relationship has been restored. All the offenses and all the rebellion against God, he will forgive. And he will not remember those sins. How? How is this possible? because of Jesus Christ and his ministry. Jesus, the sinless lamb, dying on the cross, taking on himself the penalty of our sin. Why? So that we can be forgiven. Because he was forgiven as the perfect lamb, the son of God, of sins that he didn't commit, but we did. And so we see in this picture, why is Jesus' ministry so important? How does it establish a new covenant? Because he's the one that accomplished these things that are promised for us. He is the one who has brought us into relationship with God so that we can have the law written on our hearts because he knew the law and he accomplished it. So that we can know God because he knew God. So that we can be forgiven of sin because he has accomplished the forgiveness of sin for us. That is the only way that we can be in relationship with God. And if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ Jesus as your Savior, I want to encourage you, today is the day to put your faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To repent of sin, to turn away from that path of destruction and rebellion to a God who knows you and loves you and forgives sin. Talk to someone that you came with or talk to me at the door. Find somebody here. Talk to one of us if you've never trusted in Christ. We would love to show you what that means and what that looks like. But if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, if you know that you have forgiveness for sin, oh, I want to encourage you with these three truths today of what God's promise for you means, of how this new covenant changes the way that we live. So I'm just going to walk through each of these. This idea of a law written on our hearts, of an idea of us knowing God, an idea of us being forgiven of our sins. What does that mean for you as a Christian, for me as a Christian? All right, God's law is, is written on my heart and my mind. Well, it doesn't mean that I'm going to keep the law perfectly, does it? You and I both know that that's not true. Oh, but it does mean that I delight in God's law. Actually, the truth of his word and his instruction to me is a joy for me to keep because I am changed more into his likeness. It means that I don't fear the law. It doesn't mean that I fear having to keep rules and guidelines and it doesn't feel restrictive. No, it is actually a joyful and a good thing that propels me in my relationship with the Lord to rejoice in his goodness to me because he's changed my heart. He has put these things in my mind that I might follow after him. And so I ask myself, am I ignoring the fact that God's law is written in my mind and on my heart? As I live my day to day, is it prevalent in my thinking that I want to keep God's law? Oh, not legalistically, not as if it proves something to God, those around me. No, because it's a joy. It's because I love following in righteousness, to see righteousness done, to see justice, to see love towards those around me, because I know that's what God has done for me. Because I know that's who God is. Oh, that those would be joyful things, that it wouldn't be hard for me to obey God. But to, in those moments of temptation, of facing sin, to be able to step back and to say, no, actually, this is joyful that God has written in my heart in my mind, to follow after him, the truths of his word. And so I would encourage us to be delighting in God's law and in his word, to study it, to know it, to be able to rejoice that I have God working in me that I might follow after these things, that I would hide it in my own heart to cherish it and to rejoice in righteous living. But not just to keep that for myself, but I wonder how often you find an opportunity to encourage one another. To say, brother, sister, I have seen the way you are living out the gospel in your own life. I have seen the way that you are following after the Lord and living in righteousness. I want to encourage you in that. I want to provoke you to keep doing that more. Keep following after the Lord. He has written these things in you. Secondly, in application here, God has put it in in us that we would know him. Oh, How does that work it out in in, in my life as a believer? Well, this is not just a simple head knowledge. This isn't just academics of studying things out and knowing things about God. No, it's that even in my own heart, I am changed in my knowledge of who God is and having that confidence of a loving father. Just as I described more of Uh, previously of my children, knowing me as their father is us knowing God. To realize that I know intimately in a relationship, the God of the universe who controls all things. I mean, it's it's neat when I can walk into a room and there's someone who's like kind of famous or popular. I can't even think of a great example because I don't know that many cool people, but to be able to introduce my friends to someone that's admirable worthy of me introducing them to oh you and i as believers we get the opportunity to tell the world i know the god of the universe the creator of all things i know him i have a relationship with him i talk to him he's my father my god Is that quick on your lips to tell other people of that? To be able to proclaim in confidence that no matter what you're going through, you know God? I don't know every circumstance that you're facing, every difficulty. I know there are a lot of those in each of our lives. But to recognize that whatever you are facing, whatever frustration, Illness, of relationship battle, of sin battle, is for you to be able to rest assured that God is your Father and that whatever you face, He will carry you through. Just this last week, I had an opportunity to sit with a mother whose son had died. She had lost perspective, to be honest. She was angry. She's frustrated. She couldn't believe why God would let this happen. And to some degree, I get that. But I had an opportunity to sit with this sister who professes faith in Jesus Christ and to remind her, Oh, your circumstances might make you think one way and observe life from one perspective. But do not forget that you know God. In that in knowing him, he knows your circumstances and he knows what you are enduring and he cares and he is walking with you and he provides strength. And for us to then take time and look at the ways that God had providentially brought her to see her son before he died, to have conversations that she wouldn't have had otherwise, to see opportunities to have gospel conversations with her son and doctors and nurses who cared for him in his last moments to be able to have perspective that that God actually did care and was there and was still working in her life, was to give her perspective that she was God's child. That is the hope that you and I have every day, no matter what we face. We know God. And so don't allow doubts and untruths about God To cloud your knowledge of him. In fact, continue to pursue growing in your knowledge of him. Do that with other Christians. Study the word together. Study good books together. I'd encourage you, if you haven't read J.I. Packer's Knowing God or A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy recently, pick them up. Start reading through them, thinking about who is God? Who is this God that I know that I am in relationship with who has brought me into this covenant relationship? Know him. Rest in the peace of knowing the Creator. But as a third point of application is also knowing in verse 12 that our sins are forgiven. Oh, this is part of God's promise to His people to bring them into a new covenant with this marvelous promise that our sins are forgiven. And God is not going to bring those sins back in front of us, to remind us of them. No, he is passing those sins. He's not remembering them. Why? Is it because God didn't want anything to do with those and just tossed them out? No, it's the reality that the price has been paid. It's done. There is nothing left for you and I to do to receive more forgiveness of sins. They have been forgiven. If you trust in Jesus Christ. Yes, I still feel compelled to repent of my sin, and Scripture is clear of that. But to realize even in the repentance of that sin is the recognition that there is already forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And so this promise gives us a perspective to not dwell on our sin and to be overwhelmed with our sin, but to be quick to repent of it and seek forgiveness. And to rest in assurance that God Himself has given forgiveness of sins. And if I need anybody to forgive my sins, it is God. And to know that I can live my life, and as I find those times that I fail and I sin, I can have assurance to repent quickly, to rejoice in forgiveness. How does that change my day? What? Well, It means I don't go around moping, beat down, because I've sinned. It means I take hope, because there's forgiveness even in my failures. It changes my day, because I don't have to hold that against other people when they sin against me. To know that I can offer forgiveness, because I have been forgiven of so much, it changes the way that I interact with other people. To be able to love them well, even in their sin at times. And to call them to repent of their own sin, to follow after Jesus, to find hope and forgiveness. This promise of what Christ will accomplish and has accomplished in our hearts gives us strength to carry on as fallen people until the day that we are redeemed. Until the day that we are new creatures fully, through and through, and no longer sin. And so we look at these promises. We look at a new covenant that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, and he has brought us into relationship with God the Father, and we rejoice. Not just because these are wonderful things and because they're marvelous and encouraging, which I trust that they are. Oh, we rejoice because I realize I can't break this covenant because I'm not the one who accomplished it. This is way outside of my pay grade. I rejoice because Christ in his ministry accomplished it on my behalf. I have hope because Jesus' ministry accomplished a promise that I cannot break with God. When I trust in him for salvation. And so for you, brother and sister, I want to encourage you this week. As you think about going into this week, into a new year recognizing there will be difficulties ahead, there will be things to rejoice in, there will be wonderful moments in the year to come, is to continue to remind one another, what is the relationship that we have with our Lord? And who established that? Oh, It wasn't you and me. Christ did that. So I continue to put my faith and my trust in him because of his great mercy to me. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we rejoice that you have established a new covenant with us that is so much better than the old covenant that is based on Christ's work that cannot fail. Lord, we rejoice in that. We give you praise and we give you honor because you are the one who has done this great work and it gives us hope and joy in this life to rest in you to have confidence that you're at work on our behalf because you have already accomplished the greatest work that we need accomplished. And so, Lord, help us to rest in the salvation that you provide through Christ alone, that we rejoice in your mercy to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.